quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. President Biden is preparing to speak at the White House any minute as sources at the White House describe his growing frustration with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. The lead starts right now. Israeli hostages freed in Gaza by the IDF. New video just in from the early morning raid in Rafah, Gaza, that rescued the two Israeli men. The White House says they're concerned about some 100 Palestinians reportedly killed in this joint Israeli operation. We're standing by to hear from President Biden after calling Israel's actions over the top just last week. Plus, former Governor Nikki Haley is here. I'm going to ask how she would handle the situation with Israel and Gaza, as well as her recent criticism of Donald Trump as she warns Trump to not side with Russia's Vladimir Putin again. And new details just in about the woman who opened fire at Joel Osteen's megachurch in Texas. The free Palestine message, a source says, was found on her AR-15. Plus, what we know about the young child who was with her who is now in critical condition. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we're going to start with our World Lead in Gaza. New video just released by the Israel Defense Forces show the moment Israeli forces rescued two hostages in the middle of the night, quote, lightning extraction in the southern Gaza city of Rafah. Another video shows the hostages being evacuated from Gaza via helicopter. This as a senior Biden administration official tells CNN that the White House is, quote, deeply concerned that the operation and accompanying airstrikes reportedly killed about 100 Palestinians. Though it is unclear as of now how many of those killed may have been Hamas terrorists and how many may have been innocent civilians. Those Israeli airstrikes pounded the densely populated city overnight, where more than one million mostly displaced Palestinians are currently sheltering. So what exactly is Israel's plan to relocate civilians as the IDF tries to eradicate terrorists in what they say is the last Hamas stronghold? We'll ask an expert next. Plus. We are learning more about the freed hostages, both dual Israeli-Argentinian citizens, 60-year-old Fernando Simon Marmun and 70-year-old Luis Har, now reunited with their families after more than four grueling months in Hamas captivity. Luis Har's son-in-law telling CNN it was, quote, a very special day, while Fernando Marmon's niece says they're both okay, but, quote, a little thin, a little different. Back in the United States at any moment, President Biden and Jordan's King Abdullah are going to come before the cameras and make a statement as those two leaders discuss the dire humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Sources tell CNN Biden is growing increasingly frustrated with his Israeli counterpart, Benjamin Netanyahu. The president's alleging, allegedly telling advisors and others 
that Prime Minister Netanyahu is just ignoring his advice and also obstructing efforts to alleviate the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. We're going to bring you remarks from President Biden and King Abdullah live once they begin. As we wait to hear from them, however, let's turn now to someone who says her foreign policy experience makes her the best candidate to replace Biden in November. Joining us now to discuss former U.N. ambassador, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and Republican presidential candidate, Governor Nikki Haley. Uh, Governor Haley, thanks for joining us. So I want to ask you about the CNN reporting about President Biden's increasing frustrations with Benjamin Netanyahu, with Biden feeling that Netanyahu is ignoring his advice, obstructing humanitarian relief efforts in Gaza. What would uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu listen to? Why would Pr Prime Minister Netanyahu listen to you or President Haley if he is ignoring advice from President Biden? Well, if you're going to be a friend, you should be a friend. Um, what you shouldn't do is go sit there and put conditions on a friend who's been brought to her knees. Israel went through a tragic um, situation October 7th, and Biden said that he was going to support him. And yet all he's done is try and lecture them and dictate and tell them what to do. We didn't want anybody to tell us what to do after 9-11. We knew exactly what we needed to do, and we knew exactly what we wanted to do to make sure that evil never happened again. You know, I've watched this story before, Jake. Everybody runs to the side of Israel when she gets hit, but there no one's, no one's anywhere to be found when she hits back. And you have to look at the situation. Why is Biden so disappointed with Israel? Why is he saying Israel's not listening to him? Why isn't he disappointed with Hamas? Why isn't he disappointed with Iran? If you're sitting there and worried about what's happening to the people in Gaza, as we all are, why isn't the first question, why isn't Egypt taking them? Why isn't Turkey taking them? Why isn't Qatar taking them? If you're meeting you know, with, with the leaders of Jordan, why aren't Jordan taking them? Why is it Israel's problem? to deal with that. You know why none of the Arab countries are taking them? Is because they don't know which ones are Hamas and which ones aren't. And they don't want to take that threat on themselves. So why would you ask Israel to take that threat on? It's unfair. It's not wise. Let Israel finish the job. They care about human life. You see that in the fact that they tried to get these two hostages out. We need to let them finish their job. It's interesting that you raise the topic of after 9-11, we didn't want to listen to what any other country uh, had to say about how we would respond. But just philosophically, shouldn't we have? I mean, it's hard to look at what we, the United States did in terms of Iraq uh, and then, of course, the 20-year the war in Afghanistan and not think that we could have taken some advice. I'm just, this, I wasn't planning on asking this question. But, no. but philosophically, what do you think? So I'm not talking about Iraq or Afghanistan. What I'm talking about is the emotions we felt after that is understand that we were deeply wounded, we were deeply angry, and all we wanted to do was to make sure that we made a wrong right. That's how Israel feels right now. So first, understand that they're hurt and they're bruised and they're broken. Second, understand that Hamas has said that when they get the chance, they're going to do this to Israel again. And so Israel's biggest concern is how do they protect the Israeli people from this ever happening again? Biden needs to understand that if he expects Israel to listen to them. Instead, he's lecturing them. That's not the way you're going to get Israel to listen. You have to look at what Israel's top agenda is. It's to protect the Israeli people. Biden has to show that what he's asking them to do will protect the Israeli people. And he should want that for them. 
Instead, he's so focused on the people in Gaza, yet he hasn't gone to any of the regional friends to say, why aren't you doing anything to get Hamas to stand down? Why aren't you doing anything to get Iran to stop? Let's not forget, Iran is at the center of all of this. Why has Joe Biden not put sanctions back down on Iran fully? He's yet to do that. That's what he should be focused on, not on sitting there telling Israel what to do. So uh, Donald Trump, as you know, over the weekend uh, suggested that he would tell Russia to do whatever the hell they want to any NATO member uh, that doesn't spend sufficient uh, on defense spending, um, which is part of the NATO agreement. Uh, a number of Republicans have, have come out and backed Trump's comments today. I'm not sure if you saw yesterday Senator Marco Rubio saying that, look, Donald Trump doesn't talk the way somebody who's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations talks, but he was just talking about getting uh, these other NATO countries to start pulling their weight. Why do you think so many Republicans have downplayed this um, and you have found it alarming? Well, first of all, in the administration, he talked many times about getting out of NATO behind closed doors and publicly. So that's just a fact. But the idea that he would side with a thug, the idea that Trump is saying that not only is he not going to defend our allies who were with us after 9-11, by the way, but that he's also going to tell Putin to go ahead and encourage him to invade them is unthinkable. The idea that he is siding with a man who kills his opponents, the idea that he's siding with Putin, who's holding Evan Gersovich just for doing his job, the idea that he would side with a man who has made it very clear that he wants to defeat America. One, as personally, as the wife of a combat veteran, that's the last thing you want to hear from someone who wants to be commander in chief, because that means he's not going to watch out for the men and women in the military. Secondly, that means he's not going to watch out for our friends. Do the NATO countries need to pay more? Yes, we should always push them to, to carry their weight. But at the same time, understand NATO is a success story. For 75 years, we haven't had war there. And more than that, Russia is completely intimidated by NATO. They've never invaded a NATO country. They've always invaded those that are not in NATO. Georgia, you, you know, Ukraine, Moldova, those are the ones they've invaded. So not only is Russia intimidated by NATO, China's intimidated by NATO. So why would you go and put our allies and our military in harm's way by saying something so careless? It's what happens when he gets off the teleprompter for two minutes. He becomes unhinged. He becomes undisciplined. And he goes and he starts to say these wacky things. That's what scares everybody about him. You, you noted that you are a, a Blue Star wife. Your, your husband, Michael, uh, is a major with the South Carolina Army National Guard, currently deployed in the Horn of Africa. Um, in, that, in those remarks on Saturday, President Trump uh, also questioned your husband's whereabouts as part of his campaign speech. Um, I want to play that, too. Where's her husband? Oh, he's away. He's away. Where, what happened to her husband? What happened to her husband? Where is he? He's gone. Your husband uh, apparently had access to Twitter. Uh, he responded on social media, posting a meme that reads, the difference between humans and animals. Animals would never allow the dumbest ones to lead the pack. At least I assume that's a response. Uh, wh why do you think this is what Donald Trump is choosing to focus on right now? And, and um, were you surprised of, of the cheering from the South Carolina audience for a smearing of a, of a South Carolina service member? I mean, the first thing I'll say is it's disgusting. And let's take it and, and move me and Michael out of it. 
if you're going to go and criticize a combat veteran, you criticize one veteran, you're criticizing all of them. But this continues to be a pattern of what he's doing. Whether he's sitting there calling them suckers, whether he's in Arlington Cemetery saying, why would they do this? Not understanding that, no, my husband is not with me in a presidential campaign because he's serving our country. I'm incredibly proud of him and every man and woman that serve for our country and are willing to shed blood for our country. But the idea that he thinks that you can talk about this so carelessly is a problem. Because if you don't understand that it's their shoulders we stand on, if you don't understand that everybody knows someone who has either lost their life or served this country in a way that's allowed us to keep our freedoms, that is not someone who deserves to be commander in chief. Because if you don't respect our military, how should we think you're going to respect them when it comes to times of war and prevent war and keep them from going? It's just, it was awful. Everything about it was awful. Everyone should condemn it. This isn't anything partisan. If you don't have respect for our military and our veterans, God help us all if that's the case. So I first became aware of how he talks about service members with whom he might disagree or service members who's sacrifice he doesn't understand. Back in 2015, when he said that John McCain wasn't a war hero because he was captured, he prefers people who weren't captured. Um, and it became very clear that this is just how he, t I mean, I was shocked by it because obviously I grew up with Reagan as president, but um, I, I was shocked that, that the Republican Party rallied around him and he you know, became the, the nominee, uh, even though he talked that way about a genuine war hero who was a POW for five and a half years who could have left early but didn't because that wasn't the honorable thing to do. But you went to work for him. Now, I understand a lot of patriotic Americans went to work for Trump hoping to be ballast in the ship and keep, the, you know, keep things um, steady for the United States of America. But you did go work for him after he made comments like this about other veterans. Can you just explain that decision? Were you just trying to make, trying to do what was right for the country? Like, how did you, how did you wrap your brain around it? Well, I think at first when he said things, you know, in 2015, you didn't know whether it was a slip of the tongue or whether this is who he was. I was proud to serve America in his administration. That's who I worked for, is the people of America. And to serve in his administration, I was proud to do that. There were many times that I said to him that he was his own worst enemy. There are many times when I picked up the phone or I showed up in his office and told him that something he was doing was not right. I always told him the truth. I always spoke up for what I thought a strong America should be. And quite honestly, he always listened to me and he was very respectful because he knew I said the truth and he knew that I was looking out for America. The problem is, here you have 70% of Americans who have said they don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. The majority of Americans don't want Trump. The majority of Americans don't want Biden. And now you have 59% of Americans who have said that Trump and Biden are too old. At what point are we going to say we need a new generational leader? At what point are we going to look at Congress and say maybe they need to leave their power and turn it over to a younger generation of people? Because what you've seen out of Biden and Trump, all they're doing is talking about themselves. We saw Biden. So the special counsel says that he, you know, is mentally deficient and that he is starting to, to do that. He comes out, he gives a press conference, he's angry, and then he can get some things wrong again. But then we see Trump. He goes out and he does a rally, goes two minutes off the prompter, and he's completely unhinged. And so my question is, when we have a country in disarray and a world on fire, why are we really going to let it come down to two 80-year-olds running for president? 
when we need someone who can serve eight years, fully disciplined, fully willing to work to get our country back on track, it's a wake-up call for everybody, an absolute wake-up call. And I'll tell you this, in a general election, we're given a choice. In a primary, you make your choice. The people of South Carolina and the states after that have the ability to make their choice. It's time that we have our voices heard. It's time that we write this shit. So obviously you're running in South Carolina and you've told me that you plan to be around. Um, well, obviously you want to be the nominee and then the president, but, but you're going to be around at least until Super Tuesday. If the unthinkable happens in your view and you do not win, will it be difficult to support Trump as the Republican Party's nominee, given what you think about him, quite obviously? Well, first, I, I think that um, you need to know that I am going to beat President Trump, but you should ask him if it'll be difficult for him to support me. Well, I would, but he doesn't do interviews with anybody who's not friendly and, uh, you know, on the on the program with him. And he's already made it clear that he does. I mean, he didn't sign the GOP uh, pledge in 2016, I don't think. And he's certainly not signing it now. So I, I'm 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 sure he I'm sure he would say no. Um, but, uh, but I, I guess, uh, you're, are you not going to commit to voting for him if he becomes the nominee? Well, what I'm saying, well, I said from the very beginning when there were 14 candidates on the stage that any one of the 14 would be better than Joe Biden. Right now, you see what's happening with Joe Biden. I think for the good of the country, the Democrats need to find a new candidate. They know that. Everybody knows that. And I think there's a time, I don't think that Joe Biden's going to end up being the nominee. I think that there is a time that's got to turn over. And the party that gets rid of their 80-year-old candidate is the party that will win. And that's what I'm trying to tell Republicans right now. This is the time that we need to be sober and start realizing what we need to do to fix things. We can't continue. You look at what happened last week. Here, Trump loses the immunity battle. He'll now be citizen Trump. Republicans lose the situation with the border. They lose the situation with Israel. The RNC chair loses her job. The RNC is broke. Trump has spent $50 million in campaign donations on his personal legal fees. That is not the, that is not what you need to win an election. And it's a pattern of losing that everything he touches he loses. We saw it in 2018. We saw it in 2020. We saw it in 2022. How many more times do we have to go back to the same person and say, and then finally decide maybe he's the problem? Because I know he's the problem. Now we need the rest of America to get in a, in a voter booth and show that he's the problem. Before you go, um, Governor Haley, uh, have you talked to Major Haley? Have you talked to your husband? I'm just, it must be annoying to be attacked like that when you're serving your country and uh, in the Horn of Africa? Is, is he, how's he handling it all? Well, I think the first thing is to know that he has always been with me in every election I've ever run. Um, this is, it's difficult to do it without him because he's like my right arm. So you feel like part of you is missing. They have been without internet. So I was able to catch him for um, a brief period of time. I saw the tweet, just like you saw the tweet. Um, I did not get a chance to talk to him when that happened. Um, but I will tell you, I mean, look, he's angry. I mean, he and his brothers and sisters, they don't go there just because for kicks and giggles. They go there because they still believe in this amazing experiment that is America. They're willing to go and sacrifice their lives and their families because they still believe America's worth fighting for. And when anybody mocks it,
or makes fun of it. It does make them all question, like what's happening to America? And that's a very sad state of affairs. If you want to see why our recruitment is down in the military 25%, it's because of comments like that. It's because of how America has treated our veterans. It's about the fact that we don't have their back when times like this matter. And so, look, I mean, he loves our country. He's going to do what he needs to, and so will his brothers and sisters in the military. But you should also know, military families sacrifice just as much. And we are bonded together. And when things like this happen, it hurts every one of us. And that's why this was so wrong. It was wrong. And uh, I am sorry to all the military uh, families and the service members out there who are so selfless that a comment like that would be made. President, presidential candidate, Governor Nikki Haley, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Please send our best to your husband. Thanks so much. Go to NikkiHaley.com and join us. When President Biden approaches that lectern, we're going to go live to the White House. Also ahead, the new details just coming in about the overnight operation in Gaza that freed two hostages. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. President Biden with the King of Jordan is speaking now at the White House. Let's listen in. Welcome back to the White House, man. Welcome back. And by the way, Barack's looking at you in the corner over there. And along with Queen Rihanna, is uh, meeting with Jill now, and the Queen and the Crown Prince saying, where is the prince out here? I thought he was coming out. At any rate, we've known each other for many years, and His Majesty's been a good friend all those years, a steadfast partner alongside the Queen and a beloved leader to their people. The partnership between the United States and our ally, Jordan, is strong and it is enduring. Today, the King and I discussed with our senior foreign policy staffs what the issue that's front and center in the Middle East and well beyond. The war between Israel and the terrorist organization Hamas. Over four months ago, on October the 7th, Hamas attacked Israel in an act of sheer evil, massacring more than 1,200 innocent women, men, and children the deadliest day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. More than 250 hostages were taken. 
134 are still being held hostage by Hamas. We don't know how many are still alive. The anguish that their families are enduring, week after week, month after month, is unimaginable. And it's a top priority for the United States to bring them home. I've made clear the United States shares the goal of seeing Hamas defeated and ensuring long-term security for Israel and its people. After October 7th attacks, Hamas retreated back into Gaza, where its leaders live in underground tunnels stretching for over 100 miles beneath civilian infrastructure, including, including schools, playgrounds, and neighborhoods. The past four months, as the war has raged, the Palestinian people have also suffered unimaginable pain and loss. Too many, too many of the over 27,000 Palestinians killed in this conflict have been innocent civilians and children, including thousands of children. And hundreds of thousands have no access to food, water, or other basic services. Many families have lost not just one, but many relatives, and cannot mourn for them, even bury them, because they're not safe to do so. It's heartbreaking. Every innocent life in Gaza is a tragedy, just as every innocent life lost in Israel is a tragedy as well. We pray for those lives taken, both Israeli and Palestinian, and for the grieving families left behind. Not only do we pray for peace, we're actively working for peace, security, and dignity for both the Palestinian people and the Israeli people. And I'm working on this day and night with the King and others in the region to find the means to bring all these hostages home, to ease the humanitarian crisis, and to end the terror threat, and to bring peace to Gaza and Israel enduring peace with the two-state solution for two peoples. As the King and I discussed today, the United States is working on a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas, <clears throat> which would bring an immediate and sustained period of calm to Gaza for at least six weeks, which we could then take the time to build something more enduring. Over the past month, I've had calls with Prime Minister Netanyahu as well as the leaders of Egypt and Qatar, to push this forward. The key element of the deals are on the table. There are gaps that remain, but I've encouraged Israeli leaders to keep working to achieve the deal. The United States will do everything possible to make it happen. The King and I also discussed the situation in Rafah. As I said yesterday, our military operation in Rafah the major military operation in Rafah, should not proceed without a credible plan, a credible plan for ensuring the safety and support of more than one million people sheltering there. Many people there have been displaced, displaced multiple times, fleeing the violence to the north, and now they're packed into Rafah, exposed and vulnerable. They need to be protected. And we've also been clear from the start we oppose any forced displacement of Palestinians from Gaza. Today, the King and I also discussed in detail how to get more humanitarian aid into Gaza from the very beginning. My team and I have relentlessly worked to get more aid in. I urge Congress for months to make sure that our nation's support for Israel and also includes urgently needed aid for innocent Palestinians. And I've spoken repeatedly with partners across the region, including the King, to help facilitate the flow of such aid into Gaza as much as possible, and then to actually get to the people that are, that are needed. 
We worked to get the Rafah crossing open. We worked to get Karim Shalom open. And we insist that we remain, it remain open, both remain open. We're working to open other routes as well. And we're also working relentlessly to make sure aid workers can get the aid where it's needed once it gets through. I want to recognize Jordan and the King specifically for all he has done to provide humanitarian aid to Gaza, including just a few days ago. He personally got in a plane and helped conduct an airdrop of urgently needed medical supplies into Gaza. I understand that two of his children have also joined those airdrops. They help fly humanitarian supplies in. And for years, the Queen has been passionate, a passionate advocate for the Palestinian people, particularly women and children. Your family's leadership, Your Majesty, and humanitarian commitment are commendable. And at the same time, we're working to create the conditions for a lasting peace, as we talked a lot about upstairs. With the Israeli security guaranteed and Palestinian aspirations for their own state fulfilled, I say this as a long, lifelong supporter of Israel. That's the only path that guarantees Israel's security for the long term. To achieve it, Palestinians must also seize the opportunity. As I discussed with the King today, the Palestinian Authority must re urgently reform so it can effectively deliver to the Palestinian people in both the West Bank and Gaza. Once Hamas's control of Gaza is over, they must prepare to build a state that accepts peace, does not harbor terrorist groups like Hamas and Islamic Jihad. And together, we will keep working to complete what, is, what we started, to integrate the region, to bring about peace between Israel and all its Arab neighbors, including the Palestinian state. That effort was already underway before October 7th attacks. It's even more urgent today. No one, no one understands better than our allies and partners in the region, including the King, what we need. I'm grateful to him for his friendship, including his and Jordan's unique role, unique role, a custodian of the holy sites in Jerusalem. We're grateful for this friendship. We saw that again just two weeks ago when three brave American service members were killed in an attack at a military outpost in Jordan, close to the Syrian border, by radical militant groups, backed by Iran operating in Syria and Iraq. Since then, U.S. military forces have struck targets in Iraq and Syria. Our response will continue. We're grateful to our partners and allies, like the King, who work with us every single day to advance security and stability across the region and beyond. It's difficult times like these, when the bonds between nations are more important than ever. And Jill and I are pleased to welcome him and the Queen and the Crown Prince to the White House today. Your Majesty, over to you. Mr. Mr. President, uh, thank you for your gracious hospitality accorded to me and uh, my delegation today. My visit today carries um, an added meaning as our countries this year mark 75 years of exemplary strategic partnership. However, we had hoped we would be marking this major milestone during better circumstances in my region and the world. Unfortunately, one of the most devastating wars in recent history continues to unfold in Gaza as we speak. Nearly 100,000 people have been killed, injured, 
or are missing. The majority are women and children. We cannot afford an Israeli attack on Rafah. It is certain to produce another humanitarian catastrophe. The situation is already unbearable for over a million people who have been pushed into Rafah since the war started. We cannot stand by and let this continue. We need a lasting ceasefire now. This war must end. We must urgently and immediately work to ensure the sustainable delivery of sufficient aid to Gaza through all possible entry points and mechanisms. And I thank you, Mr. President, for your support on this. Restrictions on vital relief aid and medical items are leading to inhumane conditions. No other UN agency can do what UNRWA is doing in helping the people of Gaza through this humanitarian catastrophe. Its work in other areas of operation, especially in Jordan, where 2.3 million are registered, is also vital. It is imperative that UNRWA continues to receive the support it needs to carry out its mandate. The potential threat of Palestinian displacement beyond the borders of Gaza and the West Bank is something we view with extreme concern and cannot be allowed. At the same time, we must ignore, we must not ignore the situation in the West Bank and in the holy sites in Jerusalem. Nearly 400 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since October 7th, including almost 100 children and over 4,000 injured. Continued escalations by extremist settlers in the West Bank and Jerusalem's holy sites and the expansion of illegal settlements will unleash chaos on the entire region. The vast majority of Muslim worshippers are not being allowed to enter Al-Aqsa Mosque. Christian churches have also voiced concerns about increasing and unprecedented restrictions and threats. It is also important to stress that the separation of the West Bank and Gaza cannot be accepted. Seven decades of occupation, death and destruction have proven beyond any doubt that there can be no peace without a political horizon. Military and security solutions are not the answer. They can never bring peace. Civilians on both sides continue to pay for this protracted conflict with their lives. All attacks against innocent civilians, women and children, including those of October 7th, cannot be accepted by any Muslim, as I had previously stressed. We must make sure the horrors of the past few months since October 7th are never repeated nor accepted by any human being. We must together, along with Arab partners and the international community, step up efforts to reach a ceasefire in Gaza and immediately start working to create a political horizon that leads to a just and comprehensive peace on the basis of the two-state solution. An independent, sovereign, and viable Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital. But living side by side with Israel in peace and security, this is the only solution that will guarantee peace and security for the Palestinians and the Israelis, as well as the entire region. Your leadership, my dear friend, Mr. President, is key to addressing this conflict, and Jordan is ready to work, as always, with you 
towards peace. Thank you. President Biden speaking at the White House uh, alongside King Abdullah of Jordan. They discussed the ongoing war between Israel and the terrorist group Hamas in Gaza. President Biden said he is working with the king and other allies in the region on a deal to try to free the hostages still being held in Gaza, which he says would include a ceasefire of at least six weeks. President Biden also spoke about the need to protect the innocent civilians trapped in Rafah right now inside Gaza, saying that Israel's military plans for the area should not go forward until a plan to protect those civilians is in place. Uh, King Abdullah, for his part, talking about all of the injured and killed innocent civilians in Gaza uh, and the need for a two-state solution. Uh, let me uh, bring in CNN's MJ Lee at the White House. And MJ, today's meeting comes as the Biden administration is expressing serious concerns uh, about how Israel is conducting this war in Gaza. That's right, Jake. This meeting between the two leaders coming at a, a critical moment uh, in this war for the Biden administration. Uh, we've been reporting on the mounting frustration for the Biden administration and the president specifically. And we are learning uh, that he has told his advisors that he doesn't believe that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is heeding his advice at least enough when it comes to de-escalating the military operation there and alleviating the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Uh, the tension we are learning is intensifying even more uh, as the Prime Minister of Israel has been talking about uh, readying to make a ground incursion into Rafah. We heard the president saying in his remarks just now uh, that civilians there must be protected. But Jake, as a senior administration official bluntly put it, those estimated some 1.3 million people that are in that area, they simply have nowhere to go. And there is a lot of skepticism about this idea that Benjamin Netanyahu has put forth about evacuating all of those people in that area before making a ground incursion. Uh, just in terms of whether that is even physically uh, feasible, that's something that U.S. officials have serious concerns about. And in terms of uh, that hostage operation overnight that successfully rescued two hostages uh, in Rafa. Uh, the Biden administration is deeply concerned about the reports of some hundred uh, Palestinians that were killed as a part of that operation. Uh, the high stakes uh, for the civilians that are in that area in Gaza and particularly as a part of this operation has been deeply worrisome to this administration uh, as well. Now, it was interesting, uh, Jake, when the King of Jordan actually got to the White House, a reporter shouted at the president, President Biden, uh, is Bibi, is Netanyahu taking your advice and he did respond uh, everybody does but that's not what our reporting says our reporting does show that he is frustrated uh, by this idea that he isn't heeding his advice at least not enough jake all right i'm jay lee at the white house for us thanks so much more breaking news donald trump's defense team has just gone to the u.s supreme court with a new filing in his challenge he's trying to get presidential immunity asserted uh we're gonna bring that to you story bring that story to you in a second uh right after this quick break And we're back with breaking news. Donald Trump has just asked the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh in on the dispute over whether he had immunity for the alleged crimes he committed while president. This is in response to a D.C. appeals court ruling last week that he does not have immunity and therefore can be prosecuted. Let's get straight to CNN's Paula Reid. Paula, what is Mr. Trump 
specifically asking the Supreme Court to do here? So, Jake, he's asking the Supreme Court to pause that appeals court decision last week that found he does not have immunity that would shield him from the federal election subversion case brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Now, the D.C. Circuit last week, uh, the D.C. Court, a three-judge panel, they issued a scathing and unanimous opinion, finding that he did not have immunity, and they gave him until today to signal to the Supreme Court that they intended to appeal. Now, there is an intermediary step here. If you lose uh, at the federal appeals court, you can ask not just that three-judge panel, but the entire circuit to listen to your appeal. Now, it appears they are going to try to avail themselves of that option before they ask the full Supreme Court to weigh in here. And Jake, in speaking with legal experts, in speaking with sources in and around the Trump legal team, uh, they don't actually expect that the former president is likely to win on the merits here. But the strategy is as much about delay as it is about his constitutional rights. So they are going to try to exercise every option to try to delay this as long as possible with the goal of trying to push that election subversion case back until after the 2024 election. And Jake, this puts the Supreme Court in this really unique position. They're right now uh, considering two really high stakes cases related to former President Trump that could have an impact on the election. Because just last week, of course, they heard oral arguments in that question of ballot eligibility and if Trump should appear on the ballot. That seemed to go really well for former President Trump. So it's unclear what the Supreme Court is going to do with this particular case. But again, not as much optimism that he would win, even if the justices are eventually willing to take a look at this issue. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. I want to get back to the other big story this hour, President Biden reacting to Israel's operation in Gaza. After sources tell CNN about his growing frustration with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, how can Biden navigate all of this in the 2024 race? I'm going to speak with a chief mind behind former President Barack Obama's re-election campaign. That's next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. In our politics lead, we just saw President Biden meeting a key Middle East leader trying to navigate a complicated, complex crisis and avoid a wider regional war. We just also heard Governor Nikki Haley making her case for generational change in the Oval Office as Biden's age and competency are facing new criticism following the special counsel report on his handling of classified documents to say nothing of Donald Trump's remarks over the weekend. Here to weigh in on all of this and how the president needs to juggle both his policy and the politics, Jim Messina. He ran President Obama's successful re-election run in 2012 and also served as Obama's White House Deputy Chief of Staff. Jim, good to see you again. So how damaging are attacks on Biden's age like the one we saw in the special counsel report, like what we heard from Nikki Haley just a few minutes ago? 
My sense is, Jake, they're not damaging for one really important reason. The voters know it. The voters understand that they're about to get a race between, you know, two senior citizens in Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And they will make that decision on who to vote for based on their own needs and what they want for their future, not the candidates. So I think this is, you know, I thought the report was was more political than I'd seen reports before. But in general, I don't think anything has changed since before that report came out. Am I correct in assuming that you, as a Democratic strategist who wants Biden reelected, would rather run against Donald Trump than you would against Nikki Haley? Um, absolutely, for one big reason, which is uh, uh, Joe Biden's already beaten Donald Trump once. We know we can do this. We understand the voters made this decision uh, once. You know, Nikki Haley's had to go really far to the right uh, in this primary, and so she's opened herself up too. But it is very clear that Donald Trump is taking on water 91 accounts. And, you know, we're not talking more about his legal problems than we are any other of the issues facing the country. And that clearly is an advantage for the Democrats. Last week, Douglas Brinkley told me that Biden, instead of reacting angrily to comments about his memory or, or his age, should take a page from Ronald Reagan's playbook, try to use humor uh, at least more often to counter the, the attacks. And it, Perhaps the president might have been watching. Take a listen. I've been around. I know I don't look like it, but I've been around a while. <laughs> I do remember that. Do you agree that laughter is the best way to, to deal with this? It's one very good way, absolutely, Jake. And, you know, when you see him on the stump, you and I have been with him on the stump, and he's really good with normal voters because he does have a sense of humor. He can connect with them. And I think that's what you're seeing there. And so I think absolutely humor is one way to deal with this. The other way is to get out there and have people see you. And the, clearly the campaign and the White House are doing that, are ramping that up. And I think that's another way. Voters need to see their president out there doing his job, and that's what they're doing. I don't know how much they they're doing that. I mean, he turned down the 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 Super Bowl interview. Historically, the network that's airing the Super Bowl interviews the president of the United States. You and I remember when Barack Obama, President Obama, sat down with Bill O'Reilly uh, because that's such great real estate. So many tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people worldwide are watching. Uh, and this year, you had all these young women watching because of. Uh, lots of reasons, but Taylor Swift certainly one of them. And they passed that up. And I can't think of any reason why you would pass that up on CBS, where you can have good, honest journalists like Nora or Scott or Gail. Like, why pass that up in, if you're not afraid of some sort of stumble? Well, look what they did, though, right? This is a sense of the changing of the guard and the changing of times. What they did is do the first video during the Super Bowl on TikTok from the president of the United States in an attempt to continue to reach out to, to young voters. And so it's just a different way of approaching. The rules have changed, as you and I really know, and they're going to continue to take advantage of non-traditional opportunities in a way that I really think they have to, Jake. The crisis in the Middle East is dividing Democrats. Biden repeatedly uh, has met with protesters. It repeatedly is met with protesters at his public events. Um, how concerned are you about uh, key states such as Michigan, where there is a sizable uh, Arab American and Muslim American population that uh, opposes Biden's position uh, on uh, Israel's war in Gaza? 
Look, I think as a campaign manager, your job is to be cons uh, to be concerned, right? And your job is to get things off the table. In 2012, when I was running his reelect, uh, President Obama saw my future wife and said, um, she said, you look great. And he said, thank you. You know why? And she said, no. And he said, because I paid Jim to worry and he looks terrible. <laughs> and so as a campaign manager, Jake, your job is to worry about that. And I think they're looking at numbers and wanting to make sure that they get their message out to these young voters, remind them that Donald Trump wants a full Muslim ban. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, they went on TikTok yesterday. All right, Jim Messina, thanks so much. Good to see you, sir. Thank you, sir. We're back in a moment with a brand new court filing from Donald Trump's defense team. He's trying to get a pause in his federal election subversion case. Meanwhile, Donald Trump himself was in a courtroom today in Florida for a different case. This one has to do uh, with the classified documents uh, that he allegedly mishandled. The dispute over evidence was behind today's hearing, and we're going to sort out the details in both of these cases next. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, we're going to start with major breaking news when it comes to Donald Trump's legal challenges. Mr. Trump has just asked the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh in on the issue of presidential immunity, whether he is immune from facing charges for any alleged crimes he committed while he was president. Mr. Trump wants to, the justices to temporarily block a, a scathing decision handed down by the D.C. Circuit Court last week, uh, one that flatly rejected his claims of immunity in the federal election subversion case, one that differentiated between President Trump and citizen Trump. Let's get straight to CNN Chief Legal Affairs Correspondent Paula Reed. Paula, uh, tell us what's going on. Well, as you just laid it out, Jake, he is asking the Supreme Court to pause that appeals court ruling that found that he did not have immunity that would block him from being prosecuted at the federal level by special counsel Jack Smith on charges related to election subversion. Now, if you talk to sources in and around the Trump legal team or legal experts, they all agree this is not one of his stronger arguments. They don't expect that ultimately he will prevail, uh, be granted immunity and be shielded from this prosecution. So the Trump strategy, as much as it is about defending uh, their clients' rights, they're also just trying to delay this trial, the federal election subversion trial, until after the November 2024 election. And they are using every possible option available to them and trying to exercise each one mostly to just delay, push this back as long as they can. So today they're asking the Supreme Court to pause that lower court ruling. They also intend to file a full appeal to the Supreme Court. Now they also might also go back down to the appeals court and ask the full court to hear this decision. Last week, that scathing unanimous opinion you referenced, that was by three judges, but he technically has the option to ask a full panel of the DC Circuit Court to hear this as well. Again, there isn't an expectation uh, that he would prevail, but it could be an option to delay this a little bit longer. So now all eyes are on the Supreme Court, not even so much for what they're going to do, but how long it takes them to do it. Because every day, every week that passes, that gets closer and closer to the election and makes it harder for the special counsel, Jack Smith, to bring this case. Now, the Supreme Court also in a unique position right now. They are having to contemplate two big cases related to former President Trump, either one of which could have an enormous impact on the election. Of course, last week they heard oral arguments from Trump's lawyers and a lawyer for voters in Colorado about whether Trump should appear on the ballot. And now they're also looking at this question of presidential immunity. And it's not so much about immunity as it is about timing, how long it takes them to give them a final answer on exactly what they're going to do here, because that would then give Jack Smith and former President Trump clarity 
on whether or not this case can even go before November. All right, Paula Reed, stick around. Uh, let's turn now to the other federal case against the former president that is rearing its head today related to his handling or mishandling of classified documents. CNN's Evan Pettis is in Fort Pierce, Florida right now. And Evan, Mr. Trump and his lawyers were in federal court today arguing in Florida that they deserve more access to evidence. Tell us about that. That's right, Jake. This was a hearing that was behind closed doors. It was in secret uh, because it has to do with classified documents. This is, of course, uh, at the center of this case that has been brought against the former president uh, for mis allegedly mishandling classified documents uh, at Mar-a-Lago. Now, uh, what he was here, he was here with, uh, with his lawyers meeting with the judge for about five hours uh, earlier today. Right now, uh, we believe the, uh, the special counsel and his team, uh, the, the government's uh, lawyers, are in there now having their turn talking to the judge. At issue, as you pointed out, is access to classified documents. In some cases, uh, documents that the government says are so sensitive to national security that they're only producing summaries of some of those documents. And of course, Trump's team is arguing that he should be able to see all of it, including things, anything that has to do uh, that could help his, of course, his defense. Uh, as, you, as you noted, uh, uh, Jake, you know, this is also about the timing because when we, we don't know when we're going to hear from this judge, but certainly in the next few weeks, there are going to be a, key, uh, a number of key motions by both sides that will determine whether this May schedule that the judge has set for a possible trial in the Mar-a-Lago case, whether that really stays on the calendar. The former president didn't speak to anybody when he came in. He did wave to a crowd of supporters. We saw the campaign handing out signs to some of those supporters outside the court, Jake. All right, Evan, stick around. Paula, stick around. Let me bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig into this conversation. Ellie, let me start with you, and let's begin with Trump's immunity claim. What are the different ways this could play out with the U.S. Supreme Court? What happens next? So, Jake, there's a lot of procedure happening here, but the real-world impact is this is almost certainly going to dictate whether Donald Trump faces trial on Jack Smith's election case before or after the 2024 election. Now, what Donald Trump's team has just asked the Supreme Court to do is issue a stay, which is essentially a pause, saying everything should be put on pause so we can pursue our full appellate rights in the Court of Appeals and then the Supreme Court. That would ordinarily take many, many months. And so the question is really, first of all, Will the Supreme Court issue that stay, that pause? I think they will, at least for a limited time, so they can decide this question. But the bigger question is, will the Supreme Court ultimately take this case? If they do not take the case, it's going to go back down to the district court. And I think we're very likely looking at a trial this summer. But if they do take this case and they set it on something close to a normal schedule, I think in all likelihood that would push the timeline here out until after the 2024 election. So that's how big the stakes are with this motion. And Paula, how quickly are we going to hear from the U.S. Supreme Court? It's unclear, Jake. I mean, it could take them a couple of days, could take them a couple of weeks. And we know there is likely some choreography here. They are currently considering this question of ballot eligibility. Oral arguments went very well for Trump's lawyers last week. It is widely expected that he will win on that case. But again, like I said, even sources close to the former president acknowledge that the immunity case is not as strong. Many of them don't expect the Supreme Court to take it up. And even if they did, they don't expect him to win. So watching closely to see if, especially mindful of the optics, the Supreme Court under a lot of scrutiny for questions about partisanship, if they try to release these decisions uh, close to one another, maybe a win and a loss for Trump. And Ali, let's turn now to the other case, Special Counsel Jack Smith's uh, case against Trump in Florida having to do with classified documents. Uh, 
the evidence that contains this classified material is further complicating this case. Ellie, explain why and could that impact the trial timing? Yeah, I think it will, Jake. So in an ordinary criminal prosecution, prosecutors have an obligation to turn over their evidence, their documents, their witness statements as early as possible. Certainly they would be doing that by now in the Mar-a-Lago case. But the complication is that case involves all, all sorts of classified documents. And there's a special set of laws that apply in a scenario like this, because typically the government, the prosecutors here, want to limit the types of classified information that they're turning over to the defendant, in this case, Donald Trump. And so that's what today's sort of all day long negotiating session was about. How exactly are prosecutors going to turn this information over to Trump? How much of the classified information does he get to receive in the course of what we call discovery? And that inherently slows things down. So this case is currently set for trial in late May, but but I think it's very likely that this complication will push that date out quite a bit. Evan, I want to invite you to do a little fact check uh, for our viewers here because Donald Trump spoke about the classified documents case uh, over the weekend at his rally in South Carolina. Take a listen. They didn't see the ones we had. We had them locked up and we had Secret Service all the time because I was president all the time. So were the classified documents Donald Trump had locked up and was he president? So there was Secret Service all over the place. Well, look, the, the, the compound is protected by, by Secret Service. But the issue that is at center of this case is the fact that, uh, you know, there are members of this private club who had full access to all parts of it. Uh, one of the things that you saw in the, the court documents when the former president was charged, Jake, you saw uh, documents being uh, being held in a uh, in a bathroom, in ballrooms, uh, places where the public could go, and so that's one of the issues that uh, certainly led to the charges that you saw, the mishandling charges that the former president faces. And of course, you have to remember that this case goes beyond the documents; it goes into the obstruction. The former president is accused of not only refusing to turn over documents uh, after receiving a subpoena, but also uh, uh, basically telling people, some of his co-defendants, to lie to the to the FBI. So that's what the, the charge that the former president faces. And that's why, you know, the case is so much worse, frankly, than the what than you saw the uh, investigation of Joe Biden and the documents he had. All right. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate it. Coming up next inside that dramatic rescue of two Israeli hostages in Rafah, Gaza. Israel is now sharing how its forces pulled off the overnight operation to get the men out of the hands of Hamas. Plus, Sheryl Sandberg is going to stop by. She's making a new documentary. She interviewed women once held hostage by Hamas. She heard accounts that they shared with her of sexual violence by the terrorist group, including rape. Stay with us. Our world lead now, two dual Israeli-Argentinian citizens, 60-year-old Fernando Simon Marmon and 70-year-old Luis Har, are now safely back with their families after being rescued overnight from Gaza, where they spent more than four months in captivity by the terrorist group Hamas. CNN's Jeremy Diamond has more on Israel's military rescue operation, which included a series of deadly airstrikes in Rafah, where more than one million mostly displaced Palestinian civilians are sheltering. And a warning, this story contains some di disturbing images. Luis Har and Fernando Marman are all smiles aboard an Israeli military helicopter. After 128 days in Hamas captivity, they are going home, rescued by Israeli special forces. 
Hours later, the two men embracing their families for the first time in months. Overwhelmed with emotion. A lot of tears, hugs, not many words. Just being together, surrounded by the family and surrounded by our beloved people that were without us for so long. Mentally, um, they look okay. Physically, they look okay. But I'm sure that, you know, we're going to have ups and downs in the coming days or weeks. The Israeli military released this video of the dramatic moment they were taken to safety. The result of a daring overnight raid in Rafah, Gaza's southernmost city. At 1.49 a.m., Israeli special forces breaching a residential building where intelligence indicated they were being held on the second floor. From the moment they broke into the apartment, the Yamam fighters hugged and protected Luis and Fernando with their bodies. And a daring battle and heavy exchange of fire began in several locations at the same time with many terrorists. As they escaped, the Israeli Air Force launching heavy strikes on Rafah. They say it was to divert Hamas fighters in the area. But among the dead and the injured, there are also civilians, including children. Inside Kuwait's specialty hospital, a girl trembles in shock. Streaks of blood run down the face of the boy in front of her. At least 94 people killed in the overnight strikes, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health in Hamas-controlled Gaza. Scores more injured or still under the rubble, survivors recounting the horrors of the previous night. I took all my kids and put them in one room, a small room, and told them to stay there because if we left, we would die. Once I went back to close the outside door, and once I locked it, I found the stones on top of my head. I didn't know what happened until I was taken out. The overnight strikes offering just a glimpse of the devastation that could come, as Israel vows its next offensive will come here. 100 martyrs in five minutes is a very large number. What if the actual invasion took place? 100 people were killed in different places. What if there was an attack where they were all gathered? I think the martyrs will be in the thousands. And Jake, those concerns, those fears about what an Israeli military offensive in Rafah could bring have yet to be allayed. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu doubling down on the military necessity of carrying out that offensive despite rampant international concern, including from the United States. But still, Jake, no details yet from the Israeli military about how or what they will do with the 1.4 million Palestinians living in that city, how to evacuate them, where to go, questions that still remain. Jake. Yeah, questions that I began asking the Israeli government on October 7th. Where are the innocent people supposed to go? They've never really had a good answer to that. Jeremy Diamond in Tel Aviv, thanks so much. Some women held hostage by Hamas are out of custody and recounting gruesome acts by the terrorist group, sexual violence and rape. Former tech executive Sheryl Sandberg spoke with some of these women for a new documentary she's filming. Coming up, I'm going to talk to Sandberg and talk about what she is sharing exclusively with the lead. That's next. Back with our world lead, Israeli authorities and the United Nations are investigating widespread reports of rape and sexual violence used by Hamas on October 7th against Israeli girls and women and some men. 
And after the attacks, while hostages were, and in many cases still are, being held captive in Gaza, despite mounting evidence Hamas, which the United States government classifies as a terrorist organization, Hamas has repeatedly denied the allegations. Sheryl Sandberg, the former COO of Meta, who stepped down from its board last month, has been speaking out against the sexual violence, including at the United Nations back in December, where she called the UN's relative silence unacceptable. And now Sandberg is bringing more attention to the issue in a new documentary film she's been filming in Israel. She's sharing a clip from her interview with one of the freed hostages, 18-year-old Agam Goldstein Almog, exclusively with the lead right now. We want to show it to you, though we want to warn our viewers this contains disturbing accounts of sexual violence. Every time we talked about it, at least one of the people said that they had suffered sexual and physical abuse. About half of them. And I haven't talked to all of the girls who are there. They all talked about their kidnapping, where she was kidnapped from, what they did to her, what she saw. Each was kidnapped from a different place. That's when we learned that some of them were held alone. They said that no one was being held alone, only in pairs. Girls are not alone. But some of them were alone for the entire time. Can you talk about what they told you? I talked to one of them one evening, and I asked her how they treated her, what she had been through. She started crying, and I cried with her. We were crying together, and then she started telling me. He told her, on the last day, she was being moved to a different place. She stayed in an apartment with one guard. He told her that they have to move. Go get ready. Go wash yourself at the sink. She went into the bathroom and washed her armpit. And then he came into the bathroom and held a gun to her head. He started kissing her and she started crying. She told me, you know how when you cry your mouth is like this? This is what it was like, but he wouldn't stop kissing me. He took off all her clothes and touched her all over her body. He asked her to touch his genitals in different ways and he also touched hers. She told me that she couldn't stop crying and that he wouldn't stop doing what he was doing. He enjoyed it. For 30 minutes, the gun was pointed at her head. She had no choice. I asked her, did you do it? Did you do what he asked you to do? She said, what do you mean? Of course, I had no other option. He never put his gun away from her head. And then he told her, go get dressed, and left the bathroom. 
they went back to the living room. She told me that her ears were ringing and she couldn't stop crying. She was in shock. Then they moved her to a different place and she never saw him again. He told her not to tell anyone. And Cheryl Sandberg joins And Cheryl Sandberg, you have been um, speaking out about these atrocities. Um, what motivated you to make this documentary? You know, when this happened on October 7th and the evidence started coming out about the sexual violence, rape, genital mutilation, you know, you spoke out early. This really starts with you, Jake, but the silence was really deafening. And I think it's really important that we never tolerate this form of sexual violence ever. It happened clearly in Israel on October 7th. It's happening in other places in the world right now, but people are denying it, particularly because of the polarization around the October 7th attack. And so this documentary is giving people a chance to bear witness, to hear directly from people who were there, saw things, heard things, first responders who saw the bodies, and the story that this tells about how these women and some men spent the very last moments of their lives. It's a story that we can't not look at, look at directly, see what's happening and make sure we hold the perpetrators accountable. Yeah, and obviously, as we heard from that clip, uh, these, these crimes uh, are likely going on right now uh, with the hostages still in Gaza. Why do you think the international community, generally speaking, has remained so silent uh, and not even taking a position or acknowledging that these attacks occurred? I mean, that's been the thing that I think has upset me and so many people. Um, I think what happened is that this moment was so polarized that while people were upset about the sexual violence, they were afraid to speak out. And we need to separate these things, no matter what you think should happen in Israel, no matter what you think should happen anywhere on any political decision stage. What matters is that sexual violence is never tolerated, and that means speaking out against it. You know, that that interview I did with Agam, I mean, she's this beautiful 18-year-old girl living on a kibbutz, dedicated to peace. The kibbutz is very peaceful loving community, the, the people who believe in two states, who believe in peace with their neighbors. And, you know, it was a normal day. And she watched her father killed in front of her. Then she watched her sister killed in front of her. And she and her mother and two younger brothers were driven to Gaza, where they remained for over 50 days as hostages. And the stuff she shared was the stories she heard from other female hostages of things that were happening in captivity and therefore, we should all be very afraid they're still happening today. And that's unacceptable. No matter what else you think should happen, there's no 18-year-old girl in the world who should have her world destroyed that way, who should be held as a hostage, who should be subject to, or other people held with her subject to, that kind of sexual assault. It's unacceptable. What has surprised you the most when you talk to these survivors like Agam? their strength. You look at that young woman and she is so resilient. I also, for the documentary interview, her mom, her mom has lost her husband, had to protect three children in captivity. They don't want to be spokespeople for this. They are speaking out because they want those hostages back and they want 
Hamas held accountable for, for terror and violence and sexual violence, but the strength they have inside them. Someone was, when I was in Israel said it uh, really well. Uh, she said, the people of Israel are as broken as people can be and as strong as people can be because they are facing you know, not just what happened, but a certain amount of denial about what happened. And the reason I went there to bear witness myself, make this documentary myself, was so that people can hear directly from the people who had these experiences. And I think when you hear these stories, you hear the firsthand views, you can't deny what happened. After speaking to some of these freed hostages, how concerned are you about the other young women still being held captive in Gaza? Deeply, deeply concerned. How can you not be? The story we just watched that you just played is of an experience another young girl, is young woman, is having or had in captivity. You know, and I think we have lots of evidence knowing that this has happened in captivity. If it's happened before, it's highly likely to be happening. You know, I think the other thing that this documentary really aims to, to help fix is People denying that sexual violence happened. I mean, a Hamas spokesperson has come out and said, rape is against our religion. It didn't happen. But not only did it happen, it happened systematically. The definition of a war crime, crimes against humanity, are things that are premeditated that happen at multiple, multiple locations. Almost every location where the terrorists were, the bodies that were discovered, and we have all of this from first responders, people who saw it in this documentary, I walked through the fields where these bodies were found. They're naked and yeah. they're bloody. And there's no other explanation for that, 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 you know, this is, this is a lot of people. This is women and men. And this was systematic. It was not just in one place. And if you're trying to terrorize people, if you're trying to inflict trauma on individuals, but also on a country, sexual violence, unfortunately, is a tactic that is very effective. It has been used throughout the generations and it cannot be used in any situation. And that is what we are trying to help this documentary bring to light and have people remember deep in their hearts that this is never okay, ever. Important work. The documentary, as I understand it, is due to come out in April. We'll cover it more then. Cheryl Sandberg, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Just into CNN, new details about Robert Hur, the special counsel who wrote that blistering report about President Biden and Biden's mishandling of classified documents. The new push to bring, if not haul, the special counsel before Congress to testify. That's next. Music. Thank you. In 12 days, Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley will know if her efforts to slow Donald Trump's march toward the nomination in her home state of South Carolina were successful or not, early voting for that state's primary is now underway. Let's bring in the political panel, Doug High and Kate Benningfield. Thank you so much for being here. So last hour I spoke with Nikki Haley, and here's how she framed her argument against her primary opponent, Mr. Trump. Take a listen. It's a pattern of losing that everything he touches he loses. We saw it in 2018. We saw it in 2020. We saw it in 2022. How many more times? Do we have to go back to the same person and say, and then finally decide maybe he's the problem? 
I want to get your reaction because right now there's a brand new CBS News YouGov poll that was just released, 5 o'clock Eastern, 65% of Republicans in South Carolina don't see Trump as a problem. They favor him. They're going to, but who would you vote for today? Nikki Haley only getting 30%. Uh, um, it's unfortunately not surprising. I would agree with pretty much everything that Nikki Haley said in your interview I watched earlier um, and everything she said over the past few weeks. But for uh, the larger part of the party, it's not the Trump core base. It's the Republican Party. It reminds me of Bill Murray's speech in Meatballs. It just doesn't matter. They're either not listening to it or if they hear it, they turn, they turn against it uh, anyways. One, because they're Trump loyalists through and through. Two, they're not looking at this, South Carolina voters, as what Nikki Haley did as governor. All politics are national for Republican primary voters. That benefits Trump. I appreciate the hip uh, pop culture reference. <laughs> I'm <laughs> old. Came out in 1980, I think, I lived in 1979. 79. 79. All right. Kate can look it up later. <laughs> uh, Kate, so CNN has new reporting that House Republicans are in talks with special counsel Her to testify in front of the House Judiciary Committee about his report scathing in parts about Biden's handling or mishandling of classified documents. The report has obviously fueled a lot of talk, conversation, even on this show, about Mr. Biden's uh, age and his acuity. Uh, yesterday, ABC News Ipsos released a poll conducted after the release of that report and found a majority of Americans, 59%, think that both Joe Biden and Donald Trump are too old to serve as an, another term as president. 27% say only Biden, compared to 3% that say only Trump is too old to serve. 11% say neither is too old for another term. So the majority of Americans say both of them are too old, um, but then there's another 27% that say Biden's too old. Um, we should note that this poll was taken over two days as a smaller sample size than it's typical. Um, today, President Biden decided to take a, take a note uh, and not be an angry old man about this, but to try to treat it with humor. Take a listen. And I've been around, I know I don't look like it, but I've been around a while. <laughs> I do remember that. Better way to deal with it than the... Uh angry old man yells at cloud <laughs> look i do think that's a really effective way to deal with it because he's also he's showing he's in on it he's showing he gets it right he's showing he understands that people have this concern so i think for him to acknowledge it and then do what he did kind of in the rest of that clip which is pivot to you know here are the things that i'm getting done here's what my second term will look like i mean ultimately what we see in the polling that you just cited, right? Is age going to be a factor in this race? Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, Joe Biden's 81, Donald Trump is 77. That's going to be something that voters take into account. It is not going to be the defining issue in this race. I don't believe that. I think there are going to be many other issues, including who's gonna protect your right to abortion, who's going to protect your right to vote and ensure that our democracy uh, goes forward, who's going to not allow Russia to roll into uh, to Europe, uh, you know, as they so desire, uh, which is what uh, Trump essentially invited them to do over the weekend. Um, so there are going to be other issues aside from just age that are going to be decisive in this race. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's running as an independent for president, uh, is apologizing to any family members who were hurt by this ad that a RFK Jr. Super PAC ran last night during the Super Bowl. Let's run a little clip of it. Obviously, this uh, is a reference to his uncle's presidential campaign ad in 1960. Let's play a part of that from former President John F. Kennedy 
than Senator Kennedy side by side. So the Super PAC, uh, American Values 2024, uh, spent $7 million to air the ad. Um, many members of the Kennedy family were not happy about it. Um, they had images of their parents or grandparents used without them being consulted. Uh, and also they don't like their cousin's presidential campaign uh, or his ascientific views on, on vaccines and the like. Uh, what do you make of it? Well, they, yeah, they've been unhappy for a long time and they've been public about it. Obviously, RFK's messaging as he's invoking his uncle is a long way away from Frank Sinatra redoing the lyrics to High Hopes in 1960, which he did for JFK. But he's resonating because some of these bizarre conspiracy theories have sounding boards throughout the country. People want that kind of messaging. And the other is he has a last name that everybody knows. He starts with a name ID uh, that most other candidates don't have other than, say, Trump and obviously uh, the incumbent president. Um, But also, you know, as as I was following, I know that Twitter isn't real life, but as I was looking (laughs) at responses to the ad during the Super Bowl, you know, people were critiquing the ad. I took a different view. We had millions and millions of people tuned in, the biggest uh, event of the year on television. And he was able to send a message to voters who, like the poll you referenced, aren't excited about a Biden-Trump rematch. I think it was money well spent. Yeah, we should note um, that this Super PAC American Values 2024 has received $15 million in donations from a Republican mega donor and Trump backer named Timothy uh, uh, Mellon. We should also note that even though he apologized to his family and said that he really doesn't have anything to do with this Super PAC, which legally he's not allowed to have anything to do with the super PAC. It is his pinned yes. tweet, yes. meaning like if you go to his t- Twitter page, yes. that's what he wants everybody to see. Oh. So I'm not sure how sincere the oh, apology absolutely. is. Well, absolutely. And apologizing to his family is just ensuring the stays in the news cycle for another day too, right? I mean, he just wants to draw attention to the ad. He wants to draw attention to his candidacy. How worried are you in as that somebody sense, that wants Biden to be elected that he's going to take Democratic votes? I, I worry about that. Absolutely. I think we, I mean, look, in 2020, Joe Biden won by essentially 45,000 votes in three states. I mean, this and I expect that this race will be just as close. So I think anybody who is uh, is trying to run a third party campaign where they are ultimately not going to win an electoral vote. I cannot imagine a world where RFK Jr. actually wins an electoral vote, but he will potentially take some of the popular vote. That's going to be I do think that is going to be a problem. So I think what you pointed out about uh, and I think what you pointed out about the fact that Trump donors are funding his campaign tells you a lot about what you need to know about how they view what RFK Jr. is going to do in this race, too. Kate and Doug, thank you so much. Coming up next, another CNN exclusive. Lured by a chance to escape poverty, thousands of men were recruited to fight and in many cases die for Russia. Stay with us. A disturbing story in our world lead. Russia is bolstering its military strength or weaknesses by putting paid fighters or mercenaries from other countries on their front lines in its war against Ukraine. A CNN exclusive report shows as many as 15,000 men from Nepal have already been recruited by the Kremlin, lured with promises of money. CNN's Matthew Chance went to Nepal and heard from those who have managed to make it back alive. It should be a world apart from the battlefields of Ukraine. But this Himalayan state has become an unlikely casualty of Russia's brutal war. Nepal is like Ramchandra, 
who escaped the Russian army with his life, now praying for his comrades still fighting on the front lines. He took a bullet and shrapnel in Ukraine, he told me, and saw many Nepalis killed. Some complained they were sent forward while Russian troops held back, he tells me. But the main problem was the language barrier. Sometimes you couldn't even understand where you're supposed to be going, he says, which way to point your gun. But that chaos hasn't stopped Nepalis signing up. Many posting upbeat videos on social media of their military training in Russia where they're meant to be prepared for the hardships of the Ukraine war. In reality, several former Nepali recruits tell CNN they were sent into battle after barely two weeks to fight for the Kremlin, armed with a rifle and a contract for a few thousand dollars a month, a fortune in Nepal, where unemployment is high. Well, the vast majority of Nepalis fighting for Russia and Ukraine are doing it for the money. And they come from these down at hill, impoverished areas across the country. We've actually come to, to one of them now on the outskirts of Kathmandu to meet a woman who in the past few days has learned that her husband has been killed fighting in that distant war. Hello. Hi, namaste. Namaste. He was with a unit of Nepalis battling Ukrainians, she tells me, when he was gunned down. It was my husband's friend, his Nepali commander in Ukraine, who called me in the middle of the night and told me he'd been killed, she tells me, still shocked at the news. There's been no notification from the Russians, she adds. Nothing. It's a growing frustration with Russia's treatment of Nepalis, as cannon fodder in the Ukraine war shared with these protesters near the Russian embassy in Kathmandu. Hello, sir. Hi. And the Nepali foreign minister, who told me he's pressed Moscow to curb recruitment to no avail. They have told me that uh, they will sort it out, the concern of Nepal. So they've, they've told you they will sort it out? Yeah. But they haven't done anything yet? Uh, yet they didn't have, we don't have any information of uh, doing anything. There's not much information either on how many Nepalis are even fighting for Russia. About 200, according to Nepali officials. But multiple sources, including campaigners, lawmakers and returning fighters, tell CNN as many as 15,000 Nepalis could be fighting in Ukraine. Well, we've asked the Russians how many Nepalis they've recruited and how many have been killed in what the Kremlin calls its special military operation. So far, there's been no response, but there are concerns here in Nepal that casualty figures may be high. CNN has learned that hundreds of Nepalis who've joined the Russian military are out of contact, and it's uncertain if they're dead or alive. Janukha, a young Nepali mother, is assuming the worst. Her husband hasn't called for more than two months now. The children ask me when their dad is coming home, she sobs. Even if he doesn't love us anymore, we just want to see his face. But another Nepali recruit to Russia's war may never be seen again. Matthew Chance, CNN, Kathmandu.
in the poll. Matthew Chance, thank you so much for that report. We'll be right back. Fresh off his team's huge victory, look out for Super Bowl MVP Patrick Mahomes tonight on CNN. He's going to talk about the Chiefs' incredible comeback win with our own Abby Phillip. That's tonight on Newsnight at 10 p.m. Eastern here on CNN and streaming on Max. You don't want to miss it. As many of us were getting our game day menus set this weekend, a rather remarkable life event was happening for a beloved CNN family member, Pamela Brown welcomed her new baby, Henry Redwood Lincoln Wright, into the world. Look at that. Look at that guy. Henry is six pounds, 12 and a half ounces, 20 inches long. Henry arrived very early Saturday morning, 2.22 a.m., just in time to help kick off weekend festivities. Congratulations to Pamela and Adam and the entire Wright family. We love you. We can't wait to meet him. Only Pamela Brown could look that good after delivering a baby. A heads up about this coming Sunday. Check out my series, The United States of Scandal. It's a closer look at some of the most outrageous, iconic, fascinating political controversies of the modern era. We speak to Rod Blagojevich and Riel Hunter, who was John Edwards' girlfriend, and Jim McGreevy and Valerie Plame, and so many more. The series premieres this Sunday night at 9 Eastern, right here on CNN. I can't wait for you to see it. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.